you have your Bibles, turn them with me to Acts chapter 20. And if you are lacking a Bible this morning, just raise your hand. We'll get one over to you right now. Acts chapter 20. We're going to start at verse 1, read on down through verse 16. And Luke writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater of Berea, the son of Phyrus from Berea, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychius and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days when we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up, And had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assus, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assus, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the Word of God. We recognize this morning that every single word that we have just read is true and from you. So, Father, I pray that our ears would be attentive to the word of God, that our hearts and minds would be open to receive the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. I hope you're encouraged this morning by the gospel words that we've been singing. And I hope you'll be encouraged by the word being preached and that you'll be encouraged by the taking of the Lord's Supper here in a little bit. We're continuing through our book, uh, our journey through the book of Acts called He Reigns. And actually we're going to focus mainly on just the first 12 verses that we read this morning. And, and even, even the last portion of this scripture we're not going to be able to tackle as much as, as probably we want to. 
as I was thinking about this passage, um, there was one particular thing that just sort of stood out to me. And I'll mention that here in a second. But perhaps you're like me. Have you ever been through times of just serious, serious discouragement? Serious, serious times when you've just been down and discouraged. And it's during those times of discouragement and, and disappointment when you just sort of want to get away, right? So kids, what is your favorite vacation destination? Where, where do you guys want to go? If, if your mom and dad say, hey, we're going on vacation, what would you say? Wow. We, what? Hawaii. Wow. That certainly would be a great place to get away to escape some discouragement. What else? Where else? The Grand Canyon. Wow. Wouldn't that be a great place to get away to and to, to, to just kind of let go of things? What else? Yellowstone. Boy, you guys are picking some great places. New York, all right. Uh, New York City, or just like upstate New York? Yeah, I was going to say this. I cannot imagine going to New York City to relax. All right. Okay. You know, uh, my budget's a little smaller. Stone Mountain works for me, all right? But there's a song um, that kind of reminds me of, of what my family's bent is. You see... During times of discouragement, or even times of just during stress, one of the things my family wants to do is to go find some place that's just open. I mean, our dream is to, to have some, one day have a house in the country, have some land, have maybe a horse, who knows. Just get out away from the, the, the grind and just be out in the open country. And there's this song called Home on the Range. You know the song? Right, kids? Home, home on the range. Where the deer and the antelope play. Now, so this song, you think about this song, it was in my mind last night. I was been singing it all night, unfortunately. And, and so I was thinking about this song. Okay, the, the part of the song goes, Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam. So you want, this person wants to be in a place where there's just astounding nature. To see these buffalo roaming. And then... Um, a place where the deer and the antelope play. Just lighthearted, a fun place. I don't know what they're playing. Maybe they're playing football. I don't know, but they're playing something. The deer and the antelope. They're playing. And then in part of the chorus it says, where the, cl cl where the skies are not cloudy all day. So it's got great weather. But what makes this little song sound like a piece of paradise to me is the little line that says... Okay, seldom is heard, what? A discouraging word. Oh, this mythical home on the range. Where seldom is heard, a discouraging word. That's how I feel sometimes. I just want to get away from the discouraging words. Maybe it's a word that's been spoken to me that was discouraging. Maybe it was an email that was shot to me that was discouraging. Um, maybe it was a tweet that was discouraging. Maybe it was a word from the newscast that was discouraging about our world we live in today. Who knows? Whatever it is, maybe it's a relationship 
that's just discouraging right now. Our lives are filled with discouragement, especially during certain seasons of our life. And oh, how wonderful it sounds to, to find some place where seldom is heard a discouraging word. The reason my mind was drawn to that song was because in this text here, what jumped out at me was the word encouragement. The word encouragement. You look here at Paul, and he begins to circle back through uh, the churches on his third missionary journey. And, and we see this word encouragement mentioned three times here in the first 12 verses. It's in verse 1. It says, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. Then in verse 2, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And then in the very end of this section of Scripture, and I'm not going to go past verse 12 today. It says, and when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten and had conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. Now remember, you heard Demer read the story. They had, Paul had actually brought a young man back to life, verse 12. And they took the youth away alive and, they were, and were not a little comforted. It's the exact same word. It's just translated in this particular sentence as comforted. But it's exactly the same word as the words we've already read earlier about encouragement. So encourage, encouraging, encouragement, comfort. The word here, the reason it can be translated in a couple of different ways, is it's a word in the Greek that has quite a range of meaning. If you'll do a search for this Greek word, and the word is parakleo, if you look for the word in the Greek, you'll find that it's translated into our English New Testaments in a variety of different ways. Sometimes as encouragement, sometimes as comfort, sometimes as edification. And that's sort of the, the positive side of the word. The whole word, the, all the meaning of the word is positive. But I think in our minds, we like to look at comfort, edification, encouragement. But this word, parakleo, also means to exhort, to urge, to plead, to entreat. It's a very rich word with a very deep meaning. The church is to be a place where encouragement is happening. This word is all over the New Testament. All over the New Testament. And the church should be a place where encouragement is constantly happening because the church is the people of God who are filled with the Spirit of God. We are collectively the temple of the Holy Spirit. Individually, we also are temples of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps you have heard of the Holy Spirit referred to as what? As our paraclete. Have you heard that word used of the Holy Spirit? Because it's based on the same root word, and it comes from the Gospel of John. John refers to the Holy Spirit as, perhaps in your translation, our counselor, or comforter, or advocate. In John 14, verse 16, the ESV translates it as helper. It says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. And that word helper is the word parakletos which is based on the exact same root word of encouragement. This is the role of the Holy Spirit to encourage, to comfort, to help, to exhort. Also in John 14, 26, 15, 26, and also in 16, 7, John uses the exact same word again for the Holy Spirit. So if we are a people of 
God, filled with the Spirit of God, our parakleto, then we should be people who encourage one another, parakleo. A few observations about encouragement in this passage, therefore, is what I'm going to share with you guys this morning. And here's the first one, our first point for the day in your notes. Go ahead and bring it up because I don't think this thing works anymore. Okay, the first point. Beyond that, that's the title. A spirit-empowered ministry of encouragement flourishes even during seasons of adversity. In the church, the people of God, encouragement should be happening even during seasons of great adversity. Again, look at verse 1. It says, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, this uproar, what is this uproar? You remember last week, this uproar was the riot in Ephesus. I think most of us would be discouraged after such an event. There has just been this massive riot. Paul is now having to leave town because of the riot. And a lot of us would be very discouraged by this. But Paul is the opposite. Not only was he, his spirit's stayed high, he realized that it is his job to continue to encourage the brothers. So this season of adversity, this riot that had come to Ephesus, Paul sees it as an opportunity to just encourage the brothers. Paul encourages them in the midst of trials. I think we have this false picture of Paul. I think a lot of us view Paul as this gruff, mean, just sort of in-your-face kind of guy, and he never had an encouraging word. He wouldn't fit on the range. I think that's kind of what we think of as Paul. Matter of fact, I had a, a family member, a relative, who said to me not too long ago, said, you know, I just don't like Paul. I said, what do you mean you don't like Paul? What are you talking about? How can you not like Paul? And she, and she said, well, he's just so mean. And I said, well, that's a false view of Paul. I think we look at Paul, and then we think there's Barnabas, and we think Barnabas is the antithesis to Paul because Barnabas was the encourager, right? Paul's the mean guy. Matter of fact, he was so mean, he ran off Barnabas. And that's sort of our view of Paul. That is a false view of the Apostle Paul because we read all over the place in the book of Acts and also in all the epistles that he was encouraging the churches. It was in his heart to see them encouraged. Paul was a tremendous encourager. He encouraged in the midst of trials. This was his habit in Acts 14, 21, which we studied, oh, probably about a year ago at this point. It says this, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. Lystra was, by, um, was um, where Paul had been stoned, by the way. And to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging, there's that word, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You see, Paul's understanding of the sovereignty of God allowed him to know that God reigned even over suffering and trials and therefore he viewed those trials, those sufferings, those persecutions, those periods of difficulty as tools in the hands of a sovereign God serving a much higher purpose. So Paul could say something like this in 2 Corinthians 1-3 which one of the members of our church recently said that this text blessed her specifically. It said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Now that's the same word. That's the same word. Now I want you to listen how many times that word parakleo, or that's the root word, how many times that comfort or encouragement is said in this text. Blessed be the Father 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. That was Paul's view of suffering. The purpose behind it in his life was so that he could impart comfort to others. Paul was a tremendous comforter, encourager. But how easy is it for us? Perhaps you're not like me, but I'll tell you how easy it is for me to slip into my own personal pity party. I throw it. I get the party hats and everything and throw myself the biggest pity party when things just aren't going the way that I think they should go. And I almost solicit encouragement. You talk to people, oh, it's just, oh my, it's just rough right now. It's, it's rough right now. Please encourage me. And that's not at all who, who Paul was. Paul had a view of suffering, difficulty, and pain. That although he was comforted, he didn't see that ultimately his goal in life was to find someone to help him feel better about his problems. He viewed those problems as an opportunity, a chance for him to go out and encourage others. I can't tell you how many times that my wife and I have had circumstances in our life where there's been tremendous difficulty or pain or suffering or whatever it might be. And our sufferings doesn't even compare to Paul's. Whatever it might be that's come into our life, and then God, maybe months down the road or years down the road, brings someone into our life who is going through the exact same pain and difficulty that we went through before. Why? Because God has entrusted you with suffering so that you can then in turn encourage others. Your suffering has been entrusted to you by God. Paul had thousands of more reasons to throw himself a big old pity party than any of us do. Most scholars think that when Paul left Ephesus, he enters into the most difficult time in his ministry. I'm going to bring up a, a map here of this third missionary journey. So I'm going to try to kind of help us see what's going on. So Paul leaves Antioch on his third missionary journey. Now Luke compresses a ton of travel into just a little few verses here. Paul leaves Antioch. Goes through these regions here. It says Phrygia and Galatia. He encourages the churches here. And then he comes into Asia, which is where Ephesus is. And that's where we've been the last week. We saw that Paul was in Ephesus for three years on this third missionary journey. But more than likely, while he's there in Ephesus, things begin to get a little bit troublesome. More than likely, that was when he began to hear about some problems in another church across the way over here in the, in the area of Greece, the church of Corinth, which is right there. The church in Corinth gave Paul a lot of problems. It was a church that had a lot of issues. And while Paul was in Ephesus, more than likely he heard about some problems going on in Corinth. And this hurt his heart deeply because Corinth was a church that he had planted. Now, probably while he was in Ephesus, at some point he makes a journey across the sea here 
to visit the church in Corinth. Um, it may have been during that time that he experienced a, a shipwreck or maybe two. We don't know. But Paul went through a lot of pain and, and suffering uh, during this time. We read about it in 2 Corinthians. We know that he wrote probably four letters to the church in Corinth, two of which we still have, which the Holy Spirit preserved as an errant scripture, which is 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But that's probably letter number one and letter number four. So when Paul leaves Ephesus, he heads on up to Troas, which is right here, and he expects to find Titus there and to get a report about what's going on in Corinth. He doesn't meet Titus there. We read in 2 Corinthians, he was so troubled that he didn't meet Titus there that he doesn't take advantage of a ministry opportunity that's been opened up in Troas. Instead, he heads into Macedonia, probably with the intent of going down to Corinth to try to find out what's going on. At some point after he crosses over into Europe, into the Macedonian area, he, gets, he finds Titus. Titus brings him a good report that the church in Corinth has corrected some of its error. And then that's when Paul writes 2 Corinthians. So it's during this run, though, during this time, that Paul is running into all sorts of opposition and difficulty. He's being accused of things that he didn't do. People are saying, uh, are questioning his authority as an apostle. People are making fun of his appearance. People are making fun of that he's, they're saying he writes boldly, but his appearance isn't very bold. People are saying horrible things about him. Some of the people saying horrible things about him are the Judaizers. Those who've infiltrated the church trying to say that the church still has to follow the old Mosaic laws. There are others who are within the church, Christian brothers, who are bringing him much pain. So Paul goes through this region, and we read, encouraging the churches while he himself is going through seasons of great difficulty and pain. He eventually makes his way back down to Greece, to Corinth. We read here that he stays in Corinth for about three months. He intended to travel from Corinth back over here to the area of Syria, which is his home area, Antioch, so that he could be in Jerusalem by the Passover. But when he's in Corinth, he runs into some, finds out that there are some Jews there who are planning to kill him. Probably they were on the ship that he was planning to take. We don't know for sure, but perhaps they were planning to kill him at sea and discard the body at sea. All we know is that there was this tremendous plot made against his life. Yet during those three months in Corinth, that is probably the time in which Paul wrote his tremendous letter to the Roman church. While he's in Corinth on this third missionary journey, he writes a letter to the Roman church. And this is what he tells the Romans. Romans 1, verses 11 through 12. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul's desire was always to encourage the churches. And in doing so, he himself experienced great encouragement. Paul was always in danger. We read in that letter that he wrote to the Second Corinthians, to the Corinthians, Second Corinthians, probably when he was about in this area here. We read this. This is what Paul says about his own ministry. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. 
on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And Paul wrote that before a lot of stuff still happened in his life. Yet he was going through the region encouraging the churches. We throw our pity party and throw encouragement out the window. And we're just hoping someone will encourage us. And we think we have a good excuse not to encourage because my life's so bad. I don't have to encourage anybody. I'm going through a bunch of junk. Forget that. Forget inviting that family over to my house to try to comfort them. Someone should invite me. That's our attitude. But not Paul. His love for, his anxiety for the churches didn't allow him to stop and throw himself a pity party. Instead, he was driven by the Spirit of God, our encourager, our comforter, our counselor, to be a man of encouragement, a man of comfort, a man of godly counsel. The next thing that jumps out to me on this text is that a Spirit-empowered ministry of encouragement flows out of the proclamation of the Word. It says here, we already know that Paul's primary task as he's been going city to city was to proclaim the word of God. Last week we looked at that yet again. Well, the second mention of encouragement in this verse here is in this text here is very interesting. Verse 2. It says, When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Now it says here, much encouragement. The reason the translators have written much encouragement, because it actually literally means encouragement with much words. The word logos is in there. The Greek word logos. Encouragement with much words. Well, we know what words Paul spoke. What words he encouraged people with. It was the word of God. It literally reads that Paul encouraged them with much word. Paul was encouraging the churches by teaching the word of God. Which brings us to one of our other definitions of this word encourage, which is the word exhort. Paul's encouragement was often exhortation. We don't like to think of exhortation as being the same thing as encouragement. But the Greek makes them the same word. Exhortation is encouragement. We think of exhortation perhaps as something difficult. But Paul understood, and we should understand, that one of the greatest methods of encouraging the people is to exhort them with the word of God. Encouraging and exhortation are the same Greek word in the New Testament. True biblical teaching that exhorts the people of God is a great encouragement, even when that exhortation is sometimes hard for us to hear. But Paul knew that encouragement that edifies is also encouragement that exhorts, that pleads, that calls, that urges, that implores the church with the truth. That's why he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 2, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. That's the same word. With complete patience and teaching. To Titus, Titus, the guy who was having to deal with a lot of those problems in Corinth. To Titus, he says this regarding an elder. He must hold firm 
to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction. Again, that give instruction is the same word, paracleto, paracleto. He must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And again, Paul tells Titus in Titus 2.15, Declare these things, exhort, again the same word, and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Sometimes encouragement is tough to take. And our flesh will have us ignore it and call it something other than what it is. Like judgmentalism. Or legalism. Or intrusion into my rights. That's what our flesh wants to call biblical exhortation. But it's not. And it's not just pastors that, the, that's call, that are called to exhort one another. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, unbelieving, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another. There's the word again. Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I think most of us seem to err on one of either two, in one of two ways. Some of us fail to exhort like Paul did because we fail to do so with Christ-like charity. We fail to speak the truth in love, as Paul told us in Ephesians 4.15. Therefore, we're not exhorting at all. True exhortation is, in, is inextricably linked and tied to encouragement. Remember, it's the same word. So some people's attempt to exhort isn't encouragement at all. It ends up being crushing moralism. Some people have the temperament of a dump truck. Let's just face it. Some people have the temperament of a dump truck. We back up, beep, 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 and unceremoniously dump on people. We dump on our brothers in a critical, discouraging, destructive, and prideful way. And that's what some of us struggle with. Let's face it. We struggle with beep, 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 boom, brother. Get it right. But others of us struggle on the opposite end. We fail to exhort like Paul did because we fail to do so with Christ-like boldness. We fail to speak the truth in love because we mistakenly think that the loving thing to do is to just be quiet and not say anything at all. In our failure to speak, we become lazy and casual and shallow brothers and sisters in Christ who fool ourselves into thinking that we're acting lovingly when in reality we are so self-centered and worried about our own feelings that we don't want to tell the brothers the truth that they desperately need to hear. So we usually err on one of two sides. We're either silent, passive sissies or abrasive Controlling dump trucks. They're equally bad, and you'll notice the problem with both of them is the same thing. It's pride. The problem with both of them is the same thing. Pride over here leads someone to dump on someone else. Pride over here leads someone to, I don't want my own feelings to get hurt, so I'm not going to hurt their feelings. It's still pride on both sides of the equation. Oh, how we need to learn to exhort and encourage like Paul did, like Jesus did. Isaiah refers to Jesus' gentle disposition when he says this in Isaiah 42, 3. A bruised reed he will not break, 
and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Our Lord was no dump truck, yet he was also bold and forthright, especially with the Pharisees and teachers of the law, and even with his own disciples when they became prideful and arrogant and full of themselves and self-righteous. Jesus became bold with those who were very often the dump truck drivers. Luke 9, 54, you remember the disciples, James and John, after Jesus had been rejected in one of the Samaritan villages, they say, Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's John and James. John went from being a dump truck till we read in 1 John just over and over the need for us to love the brothers. He had to learn that balance from the Lord Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, he couldn't have that balance apart from the presence of Jesus Christ in his own heart. Jesus turned to these guys and rebuked them for their attitude. True spirit-enabled encouragement in the church is a brave, bold, truth-speaking, love-saturated reality that builds and edifies the church. Therefore, my third point is this. A spirit-empowered ministry of encouragement, encouragement gives rise to remarkable unity. It says he decided to return to Macedonia in verse 3. And then in verse 4 we have this list of people that went with him. There's a Berean. There's two Thessalonians. A man from Derby, Timothy who was from Lystra. And the Asians which were probably Ephesians, Tychicus and Trophimus. What a diverse group. All these men from all these different cities traveling with Paul. What a testimony to the gospel. What a testimony to the unity of the church. These people who had, Paul had gone through on his other missionary journeys and shared the gospel with were now united to him in Christ and were they, they themselves now going on a journey to share the gospel. This is perhaps an assembly of men who had gathered together to help carry an offering back to Jerusalem. If you remember the map, when Paul went through the, the regions of Macedonia, when he circled back up through those regions, he was also collecting an offering for the church in Jerusalem. You read about that in some of the epistles. So perhaps he had this group with him to help carry that offering back to Jerusalem. It's funny, as I was looking at this text, I, I turned to Noah last night. I said, Noah, how many, how many men were there in the Fellowship of the Ring? And he said there were nine. I said, there's nine guys here. That's pretty cool. This is the fellowship of the offering. All right, Deemer, there we go. The fellowship of the offering. Here they, they even have kind of Middle Earth names, don't they? Trophimus and all this. Here they go on their way back to Jerusalem, to the Mount of God. All right, here they go. This is the fellowship of this group of men showing tremendous in, uh, unity. It's the fruit of Paul going through those regions, encouraging the brothers. Is this tremendous, remarkable unity. A broad band of brothers unified by the gospel. Think about it. If we are practicing exhortation like we just mentioned, where you find that Christ-like, spirit-enabled balance between dump truck and sissy, when you find that Christ-like balance, it builds the church but when we swing to those two extremes it kills unity either way it kills unity in the church let us pray that God will kill our pride and eliminate our blind spots blind spots by very, their very nature are things you don't know about 
Therefore, ask your brothers, hey, am I a dump truck? Am I a sissy? Tell me, help me, brother, because it's a blind spot in my life, and I can't see the blind spots. I need you. I need you to encourage me, to exhort me. Spirit-led encouragement and comfort and exhortation builds unity. Paul prays that the churches would have their hearts, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. We read that in Colossians 2. Paul writes this in Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement, there's that word again, in Christ, any comfort, there it is again, from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. And later in that very same book of Philippians, we read as he's talking to two women, he says, I entreat you... Do, uh, you Yodia, if I'm pronouncing that right, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. That word entreat, again, is the same word. God-centered, Christ-enabled exhortation and encouragement builds unity. It's essential to Christ-exalting community, and it flows out of Christ-exalting community. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore encourage, there's the word again, one another, and build one another up, just as you are doing. It builds community, it flows out of community. Thus we should not be surprised that at the gathering of the saints is key to spirit-led encouragement and exhortation, which is my fourth and final point. A spirit-empowered ministry of encouragement is stirred up when the saints gather. Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging, there's the word again, one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We see that modeled here in this text as we begin to get more details about Paul's journey beginning in verse 5. It says, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we... Now notice right there, all of a sudden, the text changes to we from they. This means that Luke has rejoined the journey. He left the journey in Acts 17 back in Philippi. Now they're in Philippi again. He rejoins the journey. Okay, But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. So it's no surprise that we get more details now because Luke, the author, is now present with them as he writes down these things as an eyewitness of what happens in Troas. The time between Luke leaving the journey in Acts 17 and him rejoining here in Acts 20, believe it or not, was probably about eight years. We don't realize how much time passes in the book of Acts here. Eight years. It says here that they gathered together with the saints, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus. Now, young man here means that he was probably between the ages of 7 and 14. A young man named Eutychus, sitting in the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. Now, I know that none of you in here have ever struggled with this. So, so try to get into the mind of Eutychus here. All right. Nobody caught my sarcasm. 
Okay? And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Children, let that be a lesson to you. Don't sit in the third story window during the preaching service. Don't fall asleep. Of course, the fall here is only a couple of feet. You'll probably survive, but don't fall asleep. But that's not what this text is about. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him up in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. It's the same word. Remember now, we may come back to this text next week to dive into it a little bit more. This is, this is a descriptive text because it's part of a narrative. It's not necessarily a prescriptive text. We can get some principles from worship, from the gathering of the saints, from this text. But we need to be careful before we take it and say, okay, this is prescriptive. That we've got to do everything that's done here in this text. There are some things that we can take as, okay, this is what we should be doing. Like gathering on the first day of the week. Why do we gather on the Lord's Day on Sunday? Part of it's because the evidence here from the text and from other early Christian documents is that they gathered together on Sundays, not Saturdays. Okay? And there was the breaking of bread. There was the ordinances. There was the Lord's Supper. That goes on in the gathering of the saints. Probably much more frequently than what we practice it. And then, of course, there was preaching. And in this case, some very long preaching. Probably some very good preaching. But there are some things in here that are obviously descriptive. They were meeting in a house. That doesn't mean we have to meet in a house. They were on the third floor. It doesn't mean we have to meet in a house on the third floor. It doesn't mean we have to have lamps going on in the, in, in the house. Nor does it mean the children have to sit in the windows. Now, the main focus, and my main focus here this morning, and I believe Paul's, uh, Luke's main focus is, of this whole text, and it, what ties it together is this word here at the end. It says, they were not a little comforted by the miraculous Elijah and Elisha-like healing of this boy that Paul performed, the people were comforted. But they were also greatly comforted by the word that was being preached to them. It was the word of God that he kept preaching that greatly encouraged these people. The miraculous healing of the boy was just further confirmation that the word was true that Paul was speaking that it had apostolic authority. And they were greatly encouraged by that. They were greatly encouraged by the preaching of the word. The gospel word. Romans 15, starting in verse 1, sort of sums it up for us. It says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures. The encouragement of what? The encouragement of the Scriptures. We might have hope. Not the encouragement of raising children who fall out of windows from the dead. Not the encouragement of spectacular miracles. The encouragement of the scriptures we may have hope verse 5 may the god of endurance and encouragement there it is again two of the texts we've read today talks about god being the god of encouragement i love that 
grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This encouragement from the Scriptures is the gospel word. We can encourage one another and should encourage one another because... Of what Christ has done. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That is the gospel. That is the word of Christ. We don't pursue encouragement aimlessly or with our own strength. It is aimed at the cross and is totally dependent on the power of Jesus Christ. The only way we can be encouragers and comforters and exhorters who edify the body is to be people who drink deeply from the gospel. The only way dump truck believers stop dumping and start speaking the truth in love and sissified believers stop being silent and start speaking the truth in love is to understand that Christ Jesus died to forgive our foolish, sinful, blind spots and lead us out of such sinful attitudes, and in turn he gave us his righteousness that includes perfect comfort, perfect exhortation, perfect truth-speaking, perfect love-saturated church-edifying words of encouragement. That's our only hope. It's our only hope. Think deeply on the gospel. Think deeply about the exchange that happened at the cross. That the one who was gentle with sinners who would not break that bruised reed, the one who was not afraid to speak the truth in love, lived that out for the sake of the elect and on our behalf. And that same gentle truth in love speaking man died for my sins, which include my loveless, dumping, fearful silence. So now the Father no longer sees our criticism and discouraging words or our silence and apathy. Instead, he sees the perfect encouragement of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a mystery. Oh, what a mystery this gospel exchange is. Colossians 2 says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And for those at Laodicea. Do you, just, do you just hear in all these texts we're reading this morning the heart of Paul? He loved the church so much. For I, do not want, for I want you to know how great a struggle I had for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen me face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. To reach all the fullness of full assurance and of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The pathway to deeper love and encouragement and exhortation in the church is a deeper knowledge of the mystery of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's the gospel. Don't hear the message this morning and say, we just had to figure out how to encourage. Let's start an encouragement ministry. And we can come up with a five-step encouragement plan. And we can identify the dump trucks in the church. And we can identify the sissies and figure out how to fix this stuff. No! 
That's not where our hope resides. Our hope resides, my hope resides, in each one of you fixing your minds on the gospel all the time. And thus putting all your hope in the fact that Christ is our perfect encourager. And you will never be able to encourage like he did apart from his work in you. And he has forgiven your sissiness and your dump truck tendencies. That's our only hope. And that gospel says that we are more than conquerors. Our sin has been dealt with. Nothing can separate us from his love. We will persevere. That gospel says... In 1 Thessalonians, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. If you are in Christ this morning, be encouraged. For you have a home. And it is not on the range. It is in heaven. It has been secured. It has been secured by the spilling of precious, precious blood. It is with the Father, and we will always be with him, where never will be heard a discouraging word. That is the hope of the gospel. And that's what we celebrate in just a few minutes as we partake of these elements. This that we do this morning should be an amazingly encouraging thing, unifying thing. Glory be to God for the gospel. Let's pray, and then we're going to go straight into the taking of the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you sent your son who had that amazing ability to encourage and to exhort in such a way that bruised reeds were not broken, smoldering wicks were not snuffed out. Oh God, there have been so many times with my words, maybe a word that I've said, maybe a word I've sent via email, whatever it might be, where I have broken reeds, snuffed out hope with my foolish words. And there have been other times when I've needed to step in and say something or do something, and I've been just way too much of a sissy. And I've been so prideful and so arrogant. But praise be to you, God, our Father, that those sins were nailed to the cross. And I bear them no more. I've been forgiven. And in my place, in place of my sin, has been given to me a righteousness. My only hope, Jesus Christ. My only hope for justification. And my only hope for sanctification. To continue to grow, to stop being that dump truck, stop being that sissy, is the cross of Jesus Christ. My only hope. So be magnified now, Father. Be glorified now, Son. Move in our midst with great comfort and encouragement. Our paraclete, the Holy Spirit, 
Use this time now to bring glory to yourself. It is in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.